I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar. We're going to be totally upfront with you. We took a big risk going independent. To make this work, we need your support to beat the corporate media. CNN, Fox, MSNBC, they are ripping this country apart. They are making millions of dollars doing it. To help support our mission of making all of us hate each other less, hate the corrupt ruling class more, support the show. Become a Breaking Points premium member today where you get to watch and listen to the entire show ad-free and uncut an hour early before everyone else. You get to hear our reactions to each other's monologues. You get to participate in weekly Ask Me Anythings. And you don't need to hear our annoying voices pitching you like I am right now. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com, become a premium member today, which is available in the show notes. Enjoy the show, guys. Everybody, happy Monday. We have an amazing show up, everybody, today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. A number of big stories we're tracking. So, uh, big news for the brothers Cuomo. We will break all of that down. Um, the very latest in why CNN may have actually moved this time when they did nothing in the past. Uh, big election shaping up for governor of Georgia with major implications for both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and the influence of Trump in that party and all of that stuff. So, we'll give you the details there. Lots of court analysts. Lots of court watchers saying that Roe versus Wade may actually be overturned. We'll break down the arguments that were being made by the conservative justices that are leading so many analysts to think in that direction. And also, what are the potential political implications of that landmark decision being overturned? Disappointing jobs numbers out last week, although it may not be quite as bad as it looked at the top line figure. We'll break down all that data. Trevor Noah, um, 
making some news. Telling the little, truth and then people getting mad at it. Actually yeah. saying something decent for once. Yeah. <laughs> um, not Still not really all that funny. But yes. anyway, let's start with the Cuomo brothers. Yes. Oh, this is just so much, Crystal. It gave us great joy. Of course, we reported to everybody that Chris Cuomo was indefinitely suspended last week. Well, over the weekend, CNN actually hired an outside law firm. And after a single day of investigation, said, <laughs> quote, additional information came to light and they fired him unceremoniously. The best part is Jim Acosta was forced to read the firing statement on CNN's air. It just gives me great joy. Let's take a listen. This is CNN Breaking News. And we have breaking news to report to you right now about CNN anchor Chris Cuomo. Earlier this week, Cuomo was suspended from CNN after documents revealed he had been involved more than previously known in shaping his brother, former Governor Andrew Cuomo's defense. Cuomo, uh, Chris Cuomo, we should point out, has now been terminated here at CNN. That's the latest breaking news uh, about what's happening here at CNN. I want to get a CNN. No, there you go. They actually went to Brian Stelter for a reaction, which is kind of stellar analysis, I'm sure. I'll read you guys the full statement and let's put it up there on the screen, please. Chris Cuomo was suspended earlier this week pending further evaluation of new information that came to light about his involvement with his brother's defense. We retained a respected law firm to conduct a review and have terminated him effective immediately. While in the process of that review, quote, additional information has come to light. Despite the termination, we will investigate mm-hmm. as appropriate. Cuomo then put a statement out. Let's put his statement up there on the screen, please, where he said, well, this is not how I want my time at CNN to end, but I've already told you why and how I helped my brother. So let me now say, as disappointing this is, I would not be more proud of the team at, C- at Cuomo Primetime, the work we did as CNN's number one show in the most competitive time slot. Not saying much, by the way. I owe them all and will miss that group of special people who did really important work. As you said, Crystal, not a single uh, not a single word of apology. Uh, the only real acknowledgement there of the people who worked for him are now screwed um, because he screwed around while trying to help his brother. But uh, honestly, a pretty surprising turn of events, um, from my opinion. I did not think they would actually fire him. I mean, he's gotten away with this for years, yeah. right? I mean, I've pointed out here, he's been having Andrew Cuomo, his brother, on his television network since before the days he was at, at, even at CNN, hired in 2013, while he was at ABC News interviewing Andrew Cuomo. While he was, uh, you know, at the top of the network, you know, all, all, again, a grain of salt, but still interviewing his brother routinely. It was greenlit by the very top and the new executives and more. And I assumed they were going to, I mean, if Jeffrey Tubin can get away with masturbating on a phone call, or a Zoom call and, you know, still only get three months punishment before he gets to come on and somehow talk about abortion on their air. I'm like, OK, this guy will probably survive. But my personal opinion is that new management was like, that's it. He's got to go. No questions. Zucker's on his way out. And then, of course, the thing that was very intriguing in the CNN statement mm-hmm. is that they found even more right. that had been revealed. And just to remind you guys of what had already been revealed, we already knew First, we learn, oh, he'd been on some phone calls. Then we learn, oh, he may have draft helped to draft some statements. Then we learn, and this was the thing that led to the initial suspension, 
that I, like you, thought it was a way for them to take some of the heat off. Mm -hmm. They'd wait an appropriate amount of time. Then they'd bring him back in, which probably was their intention. Yeah, you're right. But what came out there is that he had been using his professional and journalistic resources not only to try to track down info about what shoe was going to drop next, when the next Ronan Farrow piece was going to come out, and how many women were going to be involved, but also to try to dig up dirt on at least one of his brother's accusers and very clear from the exchanges as well that he knew what he was doing was not okay because he's texting Melissa DeRosa, delete this thread. So all of his protestations about, oh, it was, it's my brother and family first. And I just didn't even think that there could be anything wrong. I didn't even think about myself, the professional implications. Come on. You knew what you were doing was wildly inappropriate. But these guys, they get so arrogant. Yeah. Because he really well, he got away with it for so long. He got away yeah. with it all for so long. I am positive this is not the first time that he was consulting his brother and helping his brother behind the scenes 100%. in this manner. This is the way he's been operating for years and getting away with it. Number one, because he's very influential, even if his ratings aren't amazing, um, these guys are very influential with elite circles. Number two, close buddies with Zucker. And number three, he'd already seen the pattern of how Zucker had handled this in the past, basically sweeping it under the rug and not really caring. So I think the straw was probably a couple things. Number one, seems pretty clear he lied to CNN. Yes, he straight up lied to his employers. And so that's a hard thing, especially if this is someone who's supposed to be your buddy, Uh supposed to be your friend, and you realize they've been lying to you and making you look like an idiot and an asshole. That's a hard thing to overcome. And then the fact that you also have Zucker on his way out and new management on its way in that may not be quite so buddy-buddy with Cuomo at a time when their ratings are trash. So, you know, the fact that you're the highest rated guy on the network doesn't really weigh that heavily anymore. I think all of those pieces together contributed to this moment. But there's also one other piece we wanted to bring into the conversation, which is, again, the most intriguing part of this is this idea the investigation almost immediately revealed additional information of something that he had done. Well, one potential direction is not about his brother's improprieties, but potentially about his own. Let's go ahead and throw this tweet up on the screen. So news in a statement, attorney Deborah Katz says that CNN fired Cuomo one day after she arranged to provide CNN's outside attorneys with documentation of allegations that he had sexually harassed a client of hers. She cites hypocrisy of Cuomo telling viewers that he cared profoundly about Me Too. And we did already know, remember, this guy kind of got like, you know, glossed over, but there was that op-ed that came out where he was caught dead to rights grabbing a married woman's ass in front mm-hmm. of her husband. Yeah, and apologized. Apologized. So this wasn't like a, he said, she, like, he apologized for it. She had the email. So it was, you know, pretty well proven. And generally speaking, when someone engages in that type of just, like, blatantly inappropriate behavior, it's probably not the first and only time that has happened. I completely agree with you. It doesn't happen in a vacuum, especially in a workplace, and especially with your boss. boss. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of especiallys that come into play here. 
Look, I mean, the really interesting thing was Brian Stelter basically saying the quiet part out loud on his show over the weekend. We didn't want to play it for you because we didn't want to force you to listen to too much CNN. But Got essentially, yeah, like, even I have <laughs> we a got limit. got Trevor Noah later, of, so we're right, I have really a begging your patience. Hard anyway. limit on what I have to listen to <laughs> um, while we're bringing you guys the news. But Stelter said this, which is that he was a headache. And, and, and I loved the openness of it because it wasn't like he did this stuff that was wrong. It was like, man, you know, he called it death by a thousand cuts. He just continued to cut cause headaches for the CNN network. Headaches. And remember, Stelter is a man who apologized for him in the past when he was on Stephen Colbert's show saying, this is such a crazy situation. I mean, it's just never happened before. It's like, no, actually, conflicts of interest are incredibly common in the news business. Part of the problem with the news business, your own network has had to deal with it many times in the past. It was clear that they just let all of this go. I think all of this really comes back to this. It is a major indictment of Jeff Zucker's leadership, period. I allowing Andrew Cuomo to come on CNN, Chris Cuomo's show, and tout his accomplishments when all the times were good and he was having the good press and then disappearing him whenever the bad press was happening is a blatant, I mean, I, it's so difficult to even describe how much of a breach of ethics, of appearance for a purported mainstream news network that it could possibly be. There's just no way that you can be impartial one way or the other, which is why there was supposed to be a hard policy. And the second is this, Cuomo didn't happen in a vacuum, just like with sexual assault or mm-hmm. harassment or whatever that's been alleged. His misconduct and his, you know, b- uh, the blatancy in which he conducted himself happened because at the end of the day, he thought he could get away with yep. it. I don't blame the guy for trying to help his brother or for wanting to help his brother, but he should have felt constrained by the organization that he worked with hard rules from upper management that, hey, uh, you will get fired if this type of thing happens. In the past, when Jeff Zucker was confronted with the previous facts, Crystal, which were enough to fire him, he said punishing him would just be punishment for the sake of punishment. What does that even mean? Number one, that's not even English. But <laughs> number two, uh, that is exactly why he thought he could get away with it, lie to his face, and get away with it. I still think that if they didn't have a new CEO uh, in terms of discovery and management over CNN, I still think Chris Cuomo wouldn't have been fired over this. I mean— Listen, it's pretty astonishing what he was able to get away with for so long. And this idea of, oh, I'm just I'm just there for my family first. Look, I think we can all relate I to that family loyalty feeling. But you also have a responsibility to your audience. Yeah, correct. And that gets left out of the equation entirely. So, okay, if you need to be there for your brother in this moment and that's your number one priority, resign mm-hmm. or take a leave of absence rather than compromise the integrity of what you're supposed to be doing there. Um, A couple other things. I mean, number one, just from being around some of these cable news scandals uh, myself, when Stelter referred to a thousand cuts, one of the things was that uh, some of Cuomo's staff on on a show really didn't like him. Ah, And this is the thing that, you know, ultimately saw it with Matt Lauer, saw it with Keith Olbermann. When you've got a star... When there's a chink in the armor, if your staff hates you, all, the knives are going to come twist out. Twist the knife. The knives yeah. are going to come out. So yeah. that's that's one thing. And then the other thing is I just can't help but reflect on the incredible downfall of these two men, you know, two of the most well-known, powerful, influential, tied into elite circles in all of New York who were riding high just not so long ago. And now Andrew Cuomo is no longer governor. Any sort of political future, highly uncertain. 
More and more damaging information continues to come out about him and Chris Cuomo out of his prime time slot at CNN, where again, look, we make fun of the ratings all the time in the post-Trump era, but the reality is that cable news, especially on CNN and MSNBC, extremely, extremely influential in this town. No question. So the dramatic downfall of these two individuals who come from a storied family and have these deep ties into every influential circle in New York is pretty astonishing to watch. Yeah, I no, I think that's well said. And, uh, you know, all eyes on who's going to succeed him. My bet's on Don Lemon. Oh, you think? Oh, yeah. I saw rumors about Tapper. Maybe. I mean, he's based here in Washington. Uh, DC, DC hard news stuff doesn't generally play for the, uh, for the you know, primetime audience. They yeah. generally don't like to do that. It's certainly possible. But in the Biden years, politics is so boring, at least in the way that they are reporting it. You know, their January 6th stuff, which is Tapper's specialty. I don't see him succeeding in that network. They need somebody bombastic. Yeah, Lemon is extremely low rated. Oh, he's like, terrible. Talk, I mean, Listen, his, we're talking about both men who are awful. Yeah, yeah. but let, I mean, t- taking aside right. like my own judgment, of them and their ideology or whatever, he's very low rated. I mean, he's like catastrophically low rated in his time slot. So um, against much less competition than Cuomo's in the 9 p.m. slot, which is against Maddow and Tucker, um, which are the only two people in cable news. Again, these are like normative, like moral judgments and (laughs) endorsement of their views. That's not what I'm talking about. But they're two of the only cable news hosts that actually have audiences that show up for them that I think could succeed outside of the, you know, cable news ecosystem in an actual free for all for audience. So it is a tough time slot. I'm, I don't know. I, I think they'd be, it would be a foolish decision to put Lemon in just because you already know he's not performing well, even in a much easier time slot. They could do the reshuffle then, move Anderson Cooper from eight to nine, and then give uh, the 8, 8 p.m. slot to like a Jake Tapper or somebody. Because 8 p.m. Yeah. is not as competitive as nine. So I guess it would make sense. This is cable news well, thinking. We don't and, have to worry about it. But. Right. And yeah. <laughs> the other thing is, remember Tapper was the one who early on was like, I don't see any world in which right. people think what he oh, did is appropriate. Tapper's so, been gunning for that slot for he a was long gu- time. He's been gunning for it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see them slot him in there. So we'll see. There we go. We'll see. All right. Another dramatic situation that we are watching down in Georgia. So Georgia's governor's race is uh, in 2022. Mm-hmm. Was looking like it might be a matchup between current Republican governor Brian Kemp who, of course, got crosswise with Trump and the MAGA movement when he wouldn't just, like, you know, brazenly hand the election, illegally hand the election to Trump. When he wouldn't indict his own election, state's election infrastructure. Exactly. He had to so he got crosswise with them. And now, because he has fallen out of favor with some of the Republican base for doing the right thing, he has a very tough competitor in the Republican primary. Let's throw this tear sheet up on the screen. This is from Greg Bluestein. I don't know if you guys remember. We had him on a bunch yep. when we were at Rising. Um, just as an analyst, when we were leading up to the presidential elections, fantastic reporter down there for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We'll try to get him back on uh, this show at some point to break down this race as well. Former U.S. Senator David Perdue is jumping in this race, plans to challenge Georgia Governor Brian Kemp in the Republican primary next year, according to multiple people with knowledge of his decision, setting up what he describes as a divisive contest between two of the state's leading GOP figures ahead of a likely general election matchup with Stacey Abrams. So Purdue told allies, this is more reporting from Bluestein here, he was motivated to join the race because he fears that Brian Kemp 
cannot defeat the Democrat again. Now, keep in mind, uh, Purdue just lost his Senate bid to John Ossoff. Yes. Okay, so he just lost in the state, at least significantly in part because of Trump and all of his stop the steal nonsense, which effectively de-energized the Republican base and handed Democrats both of those Senate seats in those runoff elections. Um, Apparently, the former president has publicly encouraged Purdue to run. He recently warned that, quote, the MAGA base will just not vote for Kemp. Kemp, though, has his own allies in the state. The Georgia chamber has backed Kemp. And actually, I think they were reluctant about him in the past. They've had sort of divided loyalties there. Also worth remembering, another thing you might remember David Perdue for is of all of the senators and their stock trading scandals. Yes. Oh, yeah. He is actually the worst, the most, just in terms of the number of trades and mm-hmm. how active he was in the market Especially during, during his during time. Especially during the coronavirus. During yeah. coronavirus, but also with regards to defense stocks and other things mm-hmm. that his, the committees that he sat on had direct insight into. So this guy was really bad in terms of sort of corrupt potential corrupt stock trading deals, but sets up quite a match there in the Republican primary. I looked it up. Um, Kemp is still overall uh, decently, he has net positive approval rating of plus 10%, but the reason it's as high as it is, and it's still not amazing, it's 44% approved, 34% disapproved. That was as of, um, I think, a couple months ago. A significant number of Biden voters actually support him. So that's part of what's propping him up. In a Republican primary, the landscape is pretty tough for him, even though he is the incumbent. This is going to be a very interesting test to me because Virginia basically had zero stop to steal in it. Glenn Youngkin was like, get the hell out of here. I want nothing to do with you, Donald Trump. This is Trump front and center having to try and win back David Perdue. Look, he's probably going to win the primary, almost certainly. Uh, But David Perdue is going to have to try and win the Glenn Youngkin suburban voters of Fulton County and around the city of Atlanta, traditional Republicans who went and voted for John Ossoff, for Warnock, and for Joe Biden, while also trying to drive out MAGA base. Glenn Youngkin was able to do that because he folk, well, look, he just rode, you know, the discontent all the way to the governor's office, didn't really play footsie or whatever would stop the steal. And they, in Virginia, there's a couple different ways you can run a primary. Yeah, that's They right. decided to not have um, the type of primary that we think of where everybody just goes to the polls. Effectively, the party apparatus right. chose Youngkin right. so that he didn't have to try to appeal to the MAGA base That's too hard point. during his primary. Well, because they wanted to avoid a Corey Stewart situation, which is what happened previously. He almost knocked off Ed Gillespie and the Corey Stewart's like a Confederate sympathizer. And they were like, we're never going to have this again. So this is essentially what it means. A hard-fought primary where David Perdue prevails over Kemp with Stop the Steal at the center makes the real test of, is Stop the Steal enough to either turn off or not drive out those suburban voters who traditionally would have come out for a Republican in a wave election like 2022. And it also comes to the fact of, I don't know enough about the Georgia primary system about how exactly it works, but Kemp is really making sure that he brands himself as like MAGA in policy, but not obviously on Stop the Steal, where the divider is. He has a statement in reaction to Purdue. Let's put it on their screen. And yeah, I mean, basically what he's saying there 
billionaires. Governor Kemp has a proven track record of fighting the radical left to put hardworking Georgians first, while Purdue is best known for ducking debates, padding his stock portfolio during a pandemic, and losing winnable races. All true. By the way, (laughs) Purdue is also the former CEO of Dollar General. So you're telling me that he was up to uh, some shady stock? I never would have thought something from Dollar General, which is apparently now, no, Dollar Store. One of them is now the Dollar 25, not the Dollar Store, which is kind of interesting. Um, But you can see here, he says, Purdue's only reason for running is to soothe his own bruised ego because his campaign for U.S. Senate failed to inspire voters at the ballot box twice, which is pretty savage. That being said, I think Kemp is going down in flames. The other question, too, is that who is the Democrat? Well, it was just announced. Let's put it on the screen a couple days ago. Stacey Abrams is going to be gunning for the Georgia governor's race in 2022 as well. Now, Stacey Abrams being a much more identitarian candidate. Yes, she did come close, but that was in the blue wave of 2018. I see it almost impossible for her to replicate the same level of success in 2022 in what's clearly going to be a red wave election. I just don't know how this plays out, Crystal. It could come to the fact where Stop the Steal and Trump, who's going to be deeply involved in Georgia because also Herschel Walker, he wants him to run. I think he's going to be on the ground in Georgia much more. They Stop the Steal, they put Georgia really at the center of you know the whole ballot conspiracy and all of that. Trump is not going to be able to resist it in the same way that uh, he was in Virginia. He will be on the ground. It is certain that if there was a Trump-style candidate in Virginia, he would have lost as governor. Yeah. There's just no question. So yeah. is Trump still going to be able to override the red wave and all of that in order to stop and potentially keep Stacey Abrams in the White House? At the same time, she is not the person I would have chosen or anybody would have chosen in order to run and try and prevail in that type of environment. So the wins are really against both of these candidates. And I think it's more about who's going to do the most harm to them. Personally, I'm going to bet on Trump. <laughs> Because I think he's just so noxious and odious to so many people that that will keep them from turning out to vote, which could move in a 1% margin election in Abrams. But look, the the likely favorite is probably whoever wins the Republican primary, mm-hmm. which is probably David Perdue. Yeah. Sad, in my opinion, that you can endorse this nonsense and still get elected just because people hate Joe Biden so much. But that's more of an indictment of Joe Biden. Yeah. So. I mean, listen, if we just think about it, taking all of those factors out and think about 2018 was a great election year for yeah. Democrats right. and Stacey Abrams still lost. Mm-hmm. Um, now she's going to be going up against, you know, either Purdue or potentially Kemp. Kemp is the incumbent, so that gives him an advantage. But even if it's Purdue, 2022 is not going to be a good no, year for Democrats. Right. So when you just compare, so much of what we've we've talked to you guys about is the fact that all of these individual factors, sadly, actually weigh a lot less than whatever the national mood is. Yeah. All the politics quality. are so national now. Candidate quality, whether we like Stacey Abrams or hate her, like Kemp or Purdue or hate him, it's so much more about what the national mood is. And Virginia, a state that Biden won by 10 points, has just been won by Republicans. Now, they ran a good race and Trump stayed out of it and all those things. Georgia is already a much more difficult climb for Democrats. Virginia is effectively a blue state at this point. Mm -hmm. Georgia is not. Um, Georgia, you would still have to say, is a red state that is trending towards Democrats, but it's not there yet. So it would require an extraordinary year and an extraordinary performance by Stacey Abrams. Is 2022 likely to provide that kind of landscape for her? Very doubtful. 
the only chance that they have is that Trump just makes it so toxic for suburbanites that they, you know, I could see them very much splitting their their ticket. But I, I think the national wins are what you would be most likely to bet on in Georgia. So we'll see. That's why this contest is so interesting. What happens to the Republican primary? What does the influence of Trump look like? How do the national wins, how are the national wins in 2022? Is there any room to escape the nationalizing of every single race um, if you have Trump coming in and being a noxious force and turning off a lot of voters? So those are some of the questions that we're going to be exploring there. Yeah, that's right. At the same time, something that may be shaping the political landscape um, come— At at exactly that time. Yeah. (laughs) Come election time is whatever the Supreme Court decides to do about Roe versus Wade. Um, So let's go ahead and throw this vice chair sheet up on the screen. As you guys probably know, the court heard oral arguments last week about— it's a Mississippi case that was—I mean, it was intentionally engineered to get to the Supreme Court and challenge the legitimacy of Roe versus Wade. Effectively, most court watchers listening to the arguments felt very confident that it was likely, Roe versus Wade was likely to be overturned. This particular legal scholar says, one million percent chance Roe v. Wade is overturned. One million, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, Another individual analyst that Vice interviewed here pegged it at 70%. And uh, this person, Jesse Hill, said that before they listened to oral arguments, they said about 40% because the kind of reading of the court was they'll try to come up with some more compromised position that Robert seems still to be reaching for around maybe where the viability is at 24 weeks. Maybe they move that back or change that standard. Um, But after listening to the arguments, this watcher moved their percentage from 40% to 70%. There were a few things that really um, caught people's eyes. One of them was that uh, Justice Kavanaugh rattled off a list of a bunch of cases where SCOTUS had overturned past settled precedent. Because this had always been the argument of like, this is precedent. Mm-hmm. You can't mess with this. We're talking about it's 40 years. Starry, starry decisis. Yeah, yeah we're, t- we're talking about decades now where Roe versus Wade has been the law of the land. All of our sort of law, everything has been shaped around that precedent. So to go and overturn that, oftentimes the court is reluctant to do that. So the fact that Kavanaugh went out and rattled off this list of instances when precedents had been overturned and said, I have a quote from from him, he says, if we think that the prior precedents are seriously wrong, if that, why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us what the right answer is, that it's actually a return to the position of neutrality code for basically states decide what they want to do and not stick with those precedents in the same way that all those other cases didn't. Amy Coney Barrett also seemed to be very much, you know, making arguments in favor of uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. According to Vice here, the only conservative justice who didn't seem totally sold on overturning Roe 
was Justice Roberts, who now wildly is sort of a centrist voice on the court. He was repeatedly asking about the importance of the so-called viability line. Under past abortion jurisprudence, states are blocked from banning abortion ahead of fetal viability. The developmental benchmark at which fetuses are able to survive outside the womb, that typically occurs at around 24 weeks of pregnancy. That was kind of the direction that most people thought going in, that this would go in rather than a full overturning of Roe. Now that oral arguments have been had, it looks much more likely that they are going to actually get rid of Roe versus Wade. Yes, and so it's interesting. Let's put that New York Times one up there on the screen. I actually encourage people to go and read it. We'll put the link in the description because it actually does a decent enough job of just quoting a bunch of people who have different opinions on the stuff, mm-hmm. both from conservative professors, uh, legal people arguing, look, you know, Dredd versus Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, all these other laws which have been overturned in the past. You don't necessarily have to stick to jurisprudence if you think it's bad jurisprudence. Others pointing to a much more politico-social view of the court and of the fact that there is plunging legitimacy found in the Supreme Court amongst Democrats over the last, I think, 20 years, but the last 10 years in particular, given that Trump was able to put three Supreme Court justices. The person most susceptible on the Republican side to that type of thinking is the Chief Justice, John Roberts. John Roberts' nightmare is packing the Supreme Court and any sort of judicial change to that. He's Mm -hmm. like, that is the thing I want to avoid the most. I want to die with nine justices on the court, and I want it to have some sort of legitimacy within the American public. That's why he's been willing, you know, with Obamacare, with DACA, with the uh, census question. In many of these cases, citing against Donald Trump or siding much more in the favor against necessarily where people thought he was going to stand, where towards trying to find some sort of balance in public opinion. What have we learned over the last 40 years in the abortion debate? I don't think there is much balance, unfortunately. For most people, it's just such one of those issues. It's like you're either for or against. And it seems to be one of these issues where he's going to find himself in a bind, especially, Crystal, because it's a 6-3 court. He's not the swing boat. No. You know, he could even dissent and it wouldn't really matter. So with 5-4, Then the question comes, how are they going to write that? Justice Gorsuch, obviously, is one who is actually on the wrong side of a lot of the social conservatives because of the way that he voted in the, uh, I forget what the case was actually called, but it was about something about transgender sex equality in terms of how you interpret it with Title IX in the civil rights law, whether gender identity is included or not. That really, you know, put him um, on, I would say, the wrong side of a lot of the social cons who are within the movement. I also think we should, it's important to note that the social conservatives, the people who are hardcore on abortion and on all this stuff within the Republican coalition, they're not actually the majority. It's probably 32, 33%. But it comes to the tyranny of the dictatorship of the small minority point that I've brought up a lot about Nassim Taleb. These people, this is pretty much all they care about. Yeah. They will crawl over broken glass and have for the last 40 years specifically to vote for this moment. And so if it doesn't happen, they're going to freak out. So this is one of those cases where, you know, even though one third of the people who voted for Trump actually describe themselves as pro-choice, they rate it much less important on the spectrum than the people who I believe it was only 3% of the entire American electorate cared about abortion as their number one issue in the 2020 election, and something like 90% of them voted for Trump. As in, it was like, so again, you know, the people who are pro-choice, they may say, you know, they care, but on the list of priorities, very, very low. Could Roe versus Wade change all of that? We'll see. Our friend uh, Rachel Bovard actually wrote this piece. She's, you know, a big social conservative. She's kind of a court watcher. And obviously we wanted to bring her analysis as well to the table. Let's put it up there on the screen from The Spectator. 
cracks are showing in Roe versus Wade. What she points to is that a lot of the Republicans have been very skeptical of Justice Roberts and of Justice Gorsuch. So they were watching these oral arguments like a hawk. You should also put this on the table. A lot of this is tea leaves, trying to figure out where people stand. Clarence Thomas, I think, has spoken once in the last like eight years on the bench, so it's not always the easiest thing. But what she's pointing to and what a lot of the stuff that I'm hearing is that they are saying it's very likely that Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned. Now, the timeline as to when that is going to happen, given the 6-3 and all of that, could potentially be right before the midterm elections. And that's where the question of the political stuff that people have to bet on comes to the fore. Will people actually vote and freak out if Roe versus Wade is overturned or not? There's two schools of thought. Actually, I'm curious what you think. What I hear from a lot of the people uh, who are big social cons, they're like, look, they say they care, but not that many people actually freaked out in Texas. Yes, it was like a one-day story or whatever, but the people in Texas aren't going to come out and vote against Governor Abbott anytime soon. And a national repeal would certainly be big headlines, but come election time, then you know there's all this other stuff going on in the country that it won't galvanize like a women's march level movement. For me personally... I think uh, they're completely underrating how exactly when something has just been stasis for 40 years and then you take it away, I think that's going to change American politics forever. I could be completely wrong. I, I'm curious what you think because this is how the social conservatives are justifying this. Yeah. Saying that, look, look we're going to basically we're going to have our cake and eat it too and not suffer any electoral consequences uh, because, I mean, look, you can look at the polling 50 50, yes, kind of on how people feel abortion, but in well, terms of the first. To say on, on row, it's, it's actually much more like a 60, 65, which they conveniently like to ignore whenever they're talking about Yeah, this. I mean, p- people do feel complicated ways about yeah, abortion, right. which I, I actually really relate to. I, I think, I think most any people do. human can. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but on row, two thirds of the public thinks that Roe should right. stand. Yeah. So they're definitely not on the right side of majority opinion. There's a couple things that I think about this, and I'm I'm kind of up in the air about exactly how this plays out politically and how it plays in the midterm elections, et cetera. But if I were to make the case that this will be a significant political event, there's two pieces. Number one, um, Republicans have used the social conservatives holding the, dangling yeah, this like, in front of them like a, like a carrot yeah. for decades now. Yeah. I mean, how did Trump ultimately win? Yeah, it's because of this. It's no because question. of this. A lot of social conservatives were nervous about him, and there were two things that sealed the deal. Number one, putting Pence on the ticket, and number two, releasing the list of this is who's who my Supreme Court justices are going to be. And he was much more— at, uh, you He know, was more forward. He this was more key. forward. Yeah. You, it used to be that presidential candidates and senators, they would sort of dance around it. They didn't want to say that there was a he list just around <laughs> abortion. Yeah. And Trump being Trump was basically like, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going right. to overturn Roe versus Wade. And that brought home the evangelical base, which has now been consistently, actually, his strongest supporters. So taking away that motivating factor, that could depress the Republican base somewhat who have been kept together through um, these sort of culture war issues. Mediating against that, I would say there's a whole other host of culture war issues that are equally sort of like salient and energizing for the Republican base right now that we saw play out in Virginia as one example. So I'm not really sure that it's going to have that much impact on them. 
On the other side, with the Democratic base and with the sort of new suburban coalition, if there was anyone who was going to be super energized by Roe versus Wade being overturned, it would be like suburban, liberal women who may vote kind of back and forth. But this, you know, since they have assumed now for decades that this was the law of the land and that these threats were not in danger, I could see it being a very motivating force in 2022 and potentially in 2024 as well. So I do think it it shifts it shifts the political calculus in terms of who this is a motivation for. This is no longer going to be a really super effective motivator for the Republican base, mm-hmm. and it may become a more effective motivator for the Democratic base. Overall, again, going back to kind of what we were saying in Georgia, I think 2022 is going to be a bloodbath for Democrats. Yes. I don't think whatever the court does on Roe is ultimately going to save them. But over the longer term landscape, I think it would probably be better for Republicans if Roberts left this thing hanging by a thread where you still had Roe technically in place, <laughs> but states effect. I mean, that's basically what we have right now. States effectively able to use all kinds of loopholes to basically ban abortion rights overall. And, yeah. and by the way, so in terms of what the actual impact of this would be, one analysis says that more than half of U.S. states, if Roe is overturned, would have no legal protections for abortion. So you'd have a sort of like, you know, half the country would be, would you would still have these rights and half the countries you won't. It would be left up to the states. So that's Yeah, that I think be. in practice, it just means that there'll be like seven states in the South where abortion is illegal and it'll just be legal everywhere else, almost certainly. I mean, like in terms there's of- more, There's a lot more than that. There's at least 12 that have it automatically- The auto triggers? The auto trigger thing. Yeah, where- there's, there's, a, there's the difference between like 1990 Tennessee, you know, auto trigger law or North Carolina auto trigger law. And then like 2021, it actually gets overturned. Are they actually gonna- I mean- State legislatures can flip all the time. So in practice, you're right. 12 states have the auto triggers. I know Texas definitely has one. In practice, I would say 20 years from now, if it gets overturned, I really don't see it staying more than like seven, eight states. Well, again, I'm not saying like, look, if you live in Texas and all those places, yeah, like it's going to be a matter to you. But for the vast majority of the country and the population, it's almost certainly going to remain legal. One of the one of the thing that I will say here, I mean, listen, this is abortion. Like everything is also a class issue. If you're a rich woman, you're going to be able to get to do whatever you want. So you're talking about people who can't afford to travel to other states that ultimately will be impacted here um, by whatever happens. The other thing that um, liberals are concerned about, I honestly don't know if this has any merit or not, but things that other things that were settled um, social cultural rights that were settled, things like Obergefell and marriage equality, uh, things like the right uh, birth control, because that was also a Supreme yeah, that's Court right. that decision yeah. giving um, people the right to uh, have birth control. There's question, okay, well, if we're saying, well, to hell with precedent, who cares about that? Does that then open the door to relitigating some of those other social cultural issues that we thought were settled? I don't know if it is or not. I don't think so. Do I think that that could be an effective talking point for Democratic politicians trying to scare Northern Virginia women that they may not have their <laughs> birth control? Yes, I do think that is potentially potent. And on Texas, one last thing on this, because you were saying, well, the Texas yeah. thing didn't really matter. I do think it, in California, I do think it mattered. I think That's part true. of That's why- state, right? I think part yeah. of why the polls swung significantly and Gavin Newsom actually outperformed, unusual for a Democrat, what the polls were saying- I do think it's because he could point to Texas and say, you don't want that to happen here. 
That was never going to happen in California, but it freaked people out enough for them to overlook the fact that they did not particularly love Gavin Newsom and get their butts to the poll to make sure that Larry Elder did not become governor of the state. Very true. Uh, and if anything, that would show it's a good base motivator, which, like you said, if you want Nova women to come out, um, which they didn't, he, well, they did, but not necessarily in the same levels or more in the Virginia election. This very much could do it. What we're really what you should take away from this is it's complicated in terms of how it plays out politically. It yeah. could not play out bad for Republicans in 2022, and it could also open the door for like some Todd Aiken bloodbath in 2024. That's right. Right? You know, you never know how this That's stuff right. is going to play out, and projecting it is really hard. Tried to give everybody all sides of this one, so I hope that was useful to everyone. Okay, the economy. Uh, very not good jobs report with some silver linings. We'll try and present as much of a well-rounded picture as we can. Let's put it up there on the screen. It came out on Friday. U.S. hiring stumbled in November as the economy added just 210,000 new jobs. Economists expected payrolls to actually increase by 550,000 in November. So, Job growth undershot expectations in November. What they were particularly looking at is the fact that obviously that this missed. That being said, the unemployment rate did drop from the expected 4.2 uh, from to 4.2 percent from 4.6. At the same time, that's because a lot of the people have permanently dropped out of the workforce, retired early, aren't looking for a new job, and all of that. It really is just very difficult to show. Also. What we're really learning from these, these forecasters don't know a damn thing whenever it comes to the pandemic. They miss every month. It seems they're like 800K and then it adds like 3 million. Or it's like, uh, they're like, oh, it's going to be 550, add 220. And big revisions after the fact. Exactly. Like hundreds of thousands a month later. Which is another reason why you should actually take all of these initial reports with a grain of salt. Yeah. Because they've upward revised the past few months significantly and this top line number didn't really match with there's another survey, a household survey that they did that showed more job creation than this one did. Um, but still, I mean, listen, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. That number is I think it's not bad. a good yeah. number. It's a yeah. very bad number. The, the one which you should pay the most attention to is leisure and hospitality, which is really the sector which is like the most blinking light of things are getting better, things are getting worse. Leisure hospitality only added 23,000 jobs last month. And I think that by that metric, you can see that with Delta and now with the Omicron freakout, which I will be talking a lot about in my monologue, yeah. uh, I do think this is going to just be a noose around the neck of the economy for a long time until states decide, look, it's endemic and we have to move on because a lot of this is just going to continue. I won't you know, give away too much, but that's obviously my own personal bias. That being said, I want to bring you guys some of the potential silver linings within the economy. Let's put this New York Times tear sheet up on the screen. Neil Irwin, he's somebody I respect. He writes the Upshot blog. Where he talks about there is that most of the other evidence in the report actually points to a job market that is humming in some areas. So, most notably, I already said the jobless rate fell from 4.2, 4.2 from 4.6, and the speed which which unemployment has gone from a grave crisis to a benign situation is astounding because unemployment was 6.7% last December. In one year, we've experienced an improvement that took three and a half years in the last economic cycle to actually come down from, from March 2014 to September 2017. Obviously, though, pandemic is very different than a structural you know, change in the entire labor force and the economy. So they also point to the fact that among people in their prime working years from 25 to 54, the share of people employed actually rose by an entire half percentage point, which is a lot. 
78.8% in November, rapidly approaching the pre-COVID level of 80.4. So really what that shows is that, as I said, while you can see the hiring and there's a lot of early retirement, prime working male and women from 25 to 54, having them approach very close to that pre-COVID level, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, so so what Irwin points to as one potential explanation for the fact that you have some, like the top line number, very bad, but some of the underlying numbers are actually good, including Mm -hmm. wage increases and including the fact that, as you're pointing to, the labor participation rate is up, is the fact that you do have this tight labor market. Yes. And so it could be the case that the soft job creation numbers are actually a result of the fact employers want to add more jobs, but they can't get the workers in hospitality and retail that they want in order to fill those positions. Now, of course, those um, employers would be very upset about that. But for workers, that's actually good news. I mean, that's part of why wages are being driven up. And something that we've seen since, you know, the the initial waves of the pandemic have started to abate and people have started going back to restaurants and those sorts of things— is that a lot of the workers, they don't want to go back to those jobs because either it was very precarious. Um, They were, you know, the first to get laid off when coronavirus hit. Their wages were already pretty low. These are industries with, you know, very unlikely to have health care. You're likely to have low wages, long hours, terrible schedules, lack of predictability, all of those things. So when they were forced to rethink things during the pandemic, a lot of workers decided, I don't want to work in these industries anymore. Yes. Either that or they were the ones who were put the most at risk when, you know, pre-vaccines, when this disease was really, I mean, not that it's amazing now, but it, when it was really ravaging the country and it was extraordinarily frightening. So there's also an element of just choice here where workers are saying, I don't care if you want me to work retail. Right. I don't care if you want me to wait tables. I'm not doing that anymore. So in the report, as you pointed to, leisure and hospitality saw a gain of just 23,000. Retail actually fell by 20,000 last month. Now, that's on a seasonally adjusted basis, but that's pretty wild considering that we're in the midst of the holiday season. Retail should be booming. And it's not. And it may be the case that it's because workers are just saying, nah, I don't I don't want to do this work. This I think, is not for me. I really think that's what it is, Crystal. And, you know, we pointed to some people have made some crazy lifestyle changes. So put Heather Longsuite up there on the screen, which is that some 2 million or so people, yeah, 2.4 million people have just not returned to work and perhaps at this point just have no intention to. 1.5 million are women, 900,000 are men. And in that larger female figure, what we've pointed to in the past is that Washington Post piece by Heather, uh, by Henry Olson, where, what did he talk about? It's like some people are returning to a more single family model. And actually with the 900K men, it could also be vice versa. What you're seeing is that people are like, hey, you know, it's actually better for my life, especially with all the craziness with the pandemic and with school to have one parent who stays home and one parent who is the major earner. It keeps people out of the two income trap where they'll have to make more and more money in order to justify the relative same lifestyle. But it also just goes to show some people's priorities could be changing, which I completely support. I think it's a good thing in order to balance more towards your home life away from your work life. And so, Having that change with 1.5 or 2.4 million people not having yet returned, that could just be a major social cultural change forever that we'll just have to grapple with. The concern is that it's not a choice. Yeah. Right. right. The concern is that it's a lot of 
Look, there's no doubt about it. As much as we would like to have more balanced gender roles, during the pandemic, when kids were basically forced to be homeschooled, it was women that overwhelmingly bore the brunt of that, dialed back their hours or left their jobs or whatever they needed to do to be there with the kiddos to make sure that, you know, they were sitting in front of their Zoom and they were more or less doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so childcare is really, really expensive. And it's one of the costs that has, you know, continued to go up. So you have to have the ability to earn a salary that is more than the cost of childcare. Well, a lot more too. Yeah, really to justify it. Yeah. And so that's a that's a real barrier. If you separated from your job during the pandemic, that's a real barrier to going back in because you got to find something that you know is not only going to work for your family, but is also going to make up you know the childcare costs plus some. To justify the fact that you are going to be then, you know, Mm -hmm. away from your kids more and not have the flexibility and freedom that you had before. So that's a concern is that, look, if uh, personally, I, you know, there are a lot of men and women out there who would love to be home with their kids, who would love to be homemaker. Um, That's not what I would think I would go crazy Mm -hmm. personally, but it's not for me. But a lot of people are wired that way where that's what they want to do. I would love to have a landscape where that's an affirmative, positive choice that people can make and that they're supported and able to make that choice. The concern is that right now, because we haven't put those supports into place, it's less a choice than a necessity because of just the cost of uh, childcare and the unavailability of childcare too. Because there were a lot of places that shut, childcare places that shut down. Yes, one of the hardest hit sectors in the economy. I'm a big believer in something called a family voucher where people can either spend it on childcare or they can just keep the money for income support, give it to their grandparent in order to help them. But, you know, there's not enough sensible people in D.C. in order to actually give people that choice. That's right. When we we run the country, that's that's the sort of things we'll do. Yeah, in soccer land, that's how it will work. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, we'll never be reality. Let's get on to this. Always the fun segment for last. I love this. So Trevor Noah, um, who we've both, not funny, um, very clearly just not funny. It's been very sad and pathetic what's happened over to that once great show. Every once in a while, the guy has a decent take. And Trevor, maybe because of his experience in South Africa and his, uh, you know, long skepticism of the drug companies, said something on his air which makes complete sense, which was maybe we should be skeptical whenever the CEO of vaccine companies say that we need more vaccines in order to deal with a variant, which to this date, again, to this date, remains possibly more transmissible, but generally pretty mild in how it seems to have affected people. Here's what he had to say. We'll give you the reaction on the other side. On the one hand, almost all the Omicron cases have been mild so far. But on the other hand, the guy who stands to gain millions of dollars from new vaccines says we need new vaccines. Huh. If we don't make a new vaccine, this disease could be with us Ferrari. I mean, forever. Sorry, I was thinking of something else. Now, look, I'm not saying that the CEO of Moderna is lying. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, I don't think he's the most objective source on this topic. You know, I'll wait to hear what neutral experts say about a new vaccine. People like public health officials or the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. I mean, he's got nothing to gain because nobody's going to buy his vaccines either way. So I trust him. Not bad. Okay. The J and J part. A sit, you know, yeah, maybe like a sixty seconds of to be really funny crazy. of a decent inquiry into challenging power. Well, uh, didn't go over so well. Let's go and put this up on the screen with his viewers and with a lot of people in the mainstream media. 
Daily Show host Trevor Noah blasted for knocking Moderna CEO's vaccine push. The headline or the story reads, no one's laughing at the Daily Show Trevor Noah's new take on the coronavirus vaccine maker Moderna appears to be suspicious who recently went public over how his concern would hold up with Omicron. So what they point to is that a lot of people online who are viewers of the Daily Show and others were going after Trevor Noah and saying, that he was, quote, joining the death cult because he was suspicious of big pharma and believing in vaccines and science. He was like, you need to be able to, you know, separate the makers from the technology. I don't even disagree necessarily with uh, the underlying point, but what what we're really showing here is it is obvious to have skepticism about what these people are saying. And especially on Omicron, Mm. where we don't know that much. And if these guys outright immediately are like, need a booster, need a booster, need a booster, I mean, Israel just authorized a fourth shot, people. Okay, at a certain point, do we all have to ask a question of like, all right, what's happening here? When is enough? How do we balance public health? How do we balance the future? And all of that. And to end, not to be able to have somebody in the mainstream, look, once again, look, he has a very low rated show. Not that many people watch him, but enough people know what The Daily Show is, that it has some cultural imprint. Sure. And I can guarantee you the libs who watch that stuff probably have never heard that type of skepticism before. So I actually think it perhaps is even more powerful to have somebody like Trevor Noah say it. This really just takes away their ability to challenge and skept- have skepticism of power at all at some of the highest levels in the mainstream. So yeah. it's a really, you know, the criticism and the freak out over it tells us more about the environment than anything else. Yeah, and um, it's it also demonstrates the perniciousness of allowing, allowing these things to be for profit, oh, not just yeah. pharmaceuticals, but our healthcare system at large, because it is true that people who are anti-vax or vaccine skeptical, to mm-hmm. use them, you know, the term they prefer, um, have seized on the fact that big pharma has nefarious motives, oh, that yeah. they only care about profit, in order to fuel a conspiracy that the vaccines don't work, that they're a bigger risk to you than the disease itself, and that there's, you know, there's nothing to the vaccine, that they put they put you at risk effectively. When we have seen that that is not the case. But what the profit motive of big pharma does indicate is they would love to continue to charge premium prices to the developed world Mm -hmm. in perpetuity, allow this thing to circulate in the parts of the world that can't pay as much money so that they continue to, we continue to have to go back for boosters or new formulations and all of those things. And so it does, it is a problem, the fact that you have this profit motive underlying this entire system. But what Trevor Noah is saying here is 100% correct. And we've seen this also with like the Merck COVID oh, pill. Yeah, right. They put they out like, their it data works like, so well. this is amazing. It works perfectly. Just don't look too closely. Just go ahead and approve it. Now, I think it does have some efficacy, but it's not nearly what they were saying. So there is no doubt that anytime you have an actor that has a professional or financial interest at stake in whatever thing it is that they're pushing, you should be skeptical. Like, that's just good common sense. We try to apply that not just within healthcare, but we try to apply it when in our reading of the news, especially with national security stuff, who has an interest in spinning this story and who stands to gain what from this particular narrative being put put out there. That's just, you know, a good analytical way to approach these things. And the fact that big pharma CEOs are now like off limits as a topic 
of of you know challenging power is really sad. That's now, a really sad place to be. It just points to what we've talked. You can turn you can you can you cannot turn these people into heroes, and especially into tribal teams. The moment you do. You lose skepticism, and you actually cede a lot of the ground to bad faith actors. That's the other problem. You should be able to parse things with nuance. I mean, we have pointed here to the fact that Pfizer's own CEO has said that boosters every year is part of their proven revenue model. They have said that outwardly to their shareholders that they want to encourage yearly vaccination because they know that they'll have global uh, they'll have global purchasers in the large Western governments who will guarantee their profits forever. Now, look. If that was recommended, perhaps by the CDC, the FDA, and all those other people, I'm still pretty skeptical of those institutions at this point, but I would listen. Mm -hmm. But when I hear that, I'm like, no. And a lot of other people hear the same thing. Now, you should be able to parse that. Same with the Moderna CEO. The fact that they're coming out and saying, oh, well, we may need Omicron-specific boosters before we even know what the variant does right. is pretty crazy. Right. I mean, I don't remember hearing any of that for Delta, right? And yet they are latching and clinging on to anything they possibly can and perhaps pressuring regulators like the FDA and others to authorize what Israel just did and go for the fourth shot, fifth shot. I mean, who knows? when? I mean, it was a meme. Five, five jabs was a literal meme, not even like three months ago. And now it's a possible reality. So- Having that ability to have skepticism of that in the mainstream, I actually think is vital, A, if you want people to get even two doses, as we pointed to. Look, it's December 6th. These vaccines have been out for, what, like seven months? At this point, if you haven't gotten it, it's a choice. I get it. You know, it's on you, um, and you live with the consequences of your decision. But it's like, if you want to try and continue or perhaps increase some vaccine uptake or more, allowing and parsing through that type of skepticism is exactly what you have to do in the public square. And we don't see any of it. So I just think it's crazy that Trevor Noah can't have a very pretty good point like this and not just get smacked down by so much of the internet. I also guarantee you'll never have a segment like that again. I yeah. think that's a bad thing. Well, his takes are normally so cringe that he's right. like, you know, winnowed away <laughs> any part of his audience that might have appreciated the point and is left with only the most like cringe resistance lip Sadly true. All right, Saga, what are you looking at? Well, Omicron in this in this state, another one in that one, one more here, one more there, one vaccinated, the other one was triple vaccinated. That's probably all you guys heard over the weekend from the media as the number of confirmed cases of the new variant began being discovered here in the United States. The new variant has spawned old questions anew as to how exactly should we deal with this? Are pandemic restrictions the answer? Is enough enough? Should we learn to live with it? That's the question that it has taken me a long time to arrive at, and I'm hoping to share my thinking with all of you. For context, we were some of the very first people to sound the alarm about coronavirus to a large audience. From what I remember, I was beginning to get freaked out in the first week of February, and on February 26, we actually did a segment warning people about the virus while the Washington Post was still saying, hey, it's racist to care about this virus from China, and actually the flu is a bigger threat. The dominant media position was actually that at the time. So when the initial lockdown by Trump was announced, I supported it. We knew very little about the virus. The death toll out of Italy and China for elderly people especially was terrifying. When the first anti-mask protesters appeared at the Michigan Capitol or elsewhere, we respected their right to protest, though I personally thought it was over the top and pretty crazy. Now, still had some limited faith in the public health bureaucrats at the time. But what really broke the glass for me was the Black Lives Matter protests. When millions of people took the streets and it was wholesale sanctioned by the public health establishment and the media, I saw clearly what was happening. That the bureaucrats 
Democrats and the media and others were perfectly fine flouting pandemic restrictions for a higher ideal, in their opinion. By the way, that's actually fine. If you're cool with assessing risk to go out and do something you believe in, it really is all good. That's the American way. But it has to apply in both directions. And I think we all know that it hasn't for them, and it didn't then. In a sense, that actually made me a lot more civil libertarian and skeptical of pandemic restrictions. Because if they're not going to exist in good faith, as has already been proven, then they are a tool in the arsenal of the state for oppression of political opposition. Perhaps you're rolling your eyes. But look, I am not anti-vax. I have had two doses of Moderna. I have advocated strongly on this program for as many people as possible to get vaccinated to reduce risk of hospitalization and death and risk overall of population widespread. But when I see the Omicron fear and the debates here in my home city of Washington with calls to reinstate a mask mandate or Oregon making their mask mandate literally permanent for indoors, I see a permanent security regime which does not consider basic facts. Basic fact number one. With vaccines, the risk of coronavirus to our most vulnerable populations has vanished. Most of the people who are dying of COVID did not get vaccinated and are old and unhealthy. Look, I feel bad for them and their families, but they made their choice. Why does that mean the rest of us should live under the gun for the rest of our lives? Basic fact number two, contracting COVID if you're vaccinated, healthy, and young is not a risk to your life. Of course, I am talking statistically, but it's not. I got COVID after I got vaccinated, and yeah, it sucked for a couple days, and then I was fine. If you're vaccinated, you'll probably be fine. And now with therapeutics like the Pfizer pill and monoclonal antibodies, you can kick it in just a few days. We've actually created a situation where for most people, COVID really is just like the flu. Now, the fact of the matter is that COVID will be here forever. There is no situation where we can vaccinate the entire world. There will be many, many more Omicrons, COVID variants that jump the vaccine or spread faster that are immaterial as long as we have vaccines that reduce the risk of hospitalization and death and we have great therapeutics. In other words, more pandemic restrictions are not and should not be justified on the population-wide basis because it is simply a fact of life. If you're scared personally, be my guest, wear a mask. The rest of us, we're moving on. We have two choices. We can accept the situation or we can lose our freaking minds, which brings us to how some people in the world are handling this. A shining example of what we must avoid at all costs in America, even in spirit, and a good view into what the mentally ill public health bureaucrats would do if they could. The first is a video from Australia. It's at a quarantine camp for suspected COVID patients that went viral this weekend. Observe as a woman points out the absurdity of some of the restrictions, her conditions, and the way in which she's been spoken to by the staff in charge at this quarantine camp in Australia. Let's take a listen. Give you a warning, yeah? It's an official warning that you have to stand above and obey the rules while you're here, yeah? And that's, we have to go to the rules again. I don't care. So am I allowed to go to the laundry? You're allowed to go to the laundry, but you've got to wear more, yeah? Yeah, righto. You definitely can't go up to fencing rails, but you're allowed to go to the laundry, yeah? It's always been the case, yeah? Right, so if I was sitting just here, which is right near the fence, why are these guys in a cabin that's right near the fence? It makes no sense, does it? Yeah, but you can't leave your balcony to go to the fence and talk to somebody else. So if I was yeah, at that balcony... Sense. So there's, we always, there has to be lines everywhere drawn, yes? And all the lines is you cannot leave your balcony and you cannot go to someone else. Where it makes no sense, where it doesn't seem right to you, that is the law, and that's what the law is, yeah? And that's how it goes, yeah? The law. There's a law that says that. Direction, yeah? There's a show direction, yeah? And how the behavior must be done, especially in this area, because it's much more highly infectious, largely infectious, yeah? Highly infectious when all of us people are negative. So, 
Circle, the risk is still very high. Yeah? Mm. While you're here, can we just do that? Otherwise, the next time it's a $5,000 fine. We don't want to do that. It's a $5,000 fine if what? If, if you breach again. If, if I walk out onto that path. Without your mask on, for no reason, I don't know. If I cross that yellow line that I've broken the rule, I will be issued with a $5,000 fine. That's right. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. But that's actual life in Australia. Or consider Ireland, where 91% of the eligible population is vaccinated, and in response to Omicron, they are closing all nightclubs, table service, and social distancing, and restaurants is coming back. They're going to 50% capacity for mass events before the holiday season by saying three households maximum are allowed to mix indoors. Look, I'm not fear-mongering and saying this is coming to you in this exact form in the U.S., but it is a glimpse into what they really want, and worse, what all of this looks like when power is unchecked. When the mindset of eradicating an eradicable disease takes form in people's minds who have total authority over you and just how much it matters to be publicly engaged. Because the more you look away and you don't pay attention, the more the infrastructure for restricting you actually gets put more into place. It is a most important thing that we have to avoid in the coming months and as we confront new variants. This is the thing, Crystal. I mean, first of all, that video is like totally, completely nuts. Um, yeah, I'm like, oh. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, guys, stop me if you heard this one. Kamala Harris's team is crumbling, beset by tension and dysfunction and desperately planning a reset. So here is the very latest. No fewer than four staffers for the vice president have left or are planning their exits. Communications Director Ashley Etienne, Director of Press Operations Peter Vells, and Deputy Director of the Office of Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs, long title there, Vince Evans. They are all on their way out, but the most high-profile departure is Senior Advisor and Chief Spokesperson Simone Sanders. Now, Sanders had become cable news fixture thanks first to her role as a prominent surrogate on the Bernie 2016 campaign, then her perch as a CNN pundit. She then jumped ship from the most progressive candidate in the race, Bernie, to arguably the least, Biden, and proceeded to run interference for Biden on all manner of issues, but in particular those relating to his history as Jim Crow Joe. Lacking a personal relationship with Biden, however, Sanders was ultimately given a significant role in the vice president's office in return for her loyal service to them during the campaign. So this quartet of departures has sparked a new round of leaks and reporting on the turmoil inside the vice president's team. Axios reports that, quote, one recurring theme is concern, even fear, about career harm by being too closely linked to a flagging operation. Axios is told some Harris staffers want to work on Biden's re-election campaign, while others don't want to be aligned with Harris in the event another promising Democrat runs for president in 2024, read Pete Buttigieg. Now, this is pretty incredible. Kamala Harris was handpicked as the future of the Democratic Party just a little bit over a year ago. She is now the sitting vice president, and with a remotely acceptable image, she would be the odds-on favorite to be the next Democratic nominee. But these ambitious staffers are hedging their bets, fleeing like rats off a sinking ship, rather than be tied to the politician who had so recently been anointed as the chosen one. Even more revealing, however, was reporting from the Washington Post. Amidst all the expected caveats about unfair expectations and sexism and racism, the Washington Post paints a damning portrait of a principal actor with no one to blame but herself, lashing out at staffers for her own inadequacies. 
quote, Staffers who worked for Harris before she was vice president said one consistent problem was that Harris would refuse to wade into briefing materials prepared by staff members, then berate employees when she appeared unprepared. It's clear that you're not working with somebody who is willing to do the prep and the work, one former staffer said. With Kamala, you have to put up with a constant amount of soul-destroying criticism and also her own lack of confidence. So you are constantly sort of propping up a bully and it's not really clear why. That is brutal. Now, if the latest storyline out of Kamala World sounds familiar, it's because it is the same dynamic that played out during her presidential primary campaign. And oh, by the way, the same dynamic that played out throughout her various roles in California politics. As a former Kamala aide told The Post, quote, one of the things we've said in our little text groups among each other is that the common denominator through all this is her. Who are the next talented people you're going to bring in and burn through and then have them pretend they're retiring for positive reasons? Yes, Kamala's current problems were all thoroughly predictable, from the patterns of dysfunction that follow her from job to job, campaign to campaign, to her overly cautious nature, seeming inability to make a decision and stick to it, over-reliance on family members who undermine the work of paid staffers. There's also her spotty talents as a politician at best, and clumsy handling of interviews and public exchanges. But most of all, it's been clear for a while that the public just isn't all that keen on her. Kamala Harris was very good at winning approval in Democratic fundraising circles and in cable news greenrooms, not so good at drawing a broad base of support from even the Democratic base, let alone the country at large. It says something profound about the Democratic Party and their priorities and their contempt for voters that in spite of all of these warning signs, they pushed forward to select Kamala Harris as the future of the party. Don't forget, there was an entire movement of Democratic elites who orchestrated Kamala's ascent, who sought to assuage Biden's concerns. After all, he had some reluctance given Kamala's insta-ready attacks on him, their first debate, and his own concerns about her popularity in her home state. Accounts of the process in the New York Times and elsewhere they describe Kamala's selection as being more about checking off a laundry list of identity signifiers than about evaluating a candidate's abilities or even popularity. As Harry Reid told The Times on Biden's decision, quote, I think he came to the conclusion that he should pick a black woman. They are our most loyal voters, and I think that the black women of America deserved a black vice presidential candidate. I personally think the black women of America and everyone else for that matter, deserve leaders who have clearly articulated priorities for the country and the skills and abilities to achieve them. Not to mention, the fact of the matter is that the black women of America overwhelmingly voted for white men, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders for president, largely because they liked Bernie's policy and they believed that Joe could beat Trump. Kamala neither has Bernie's policy positions nor Joe's electability. But as usual, Democratic elites thought they knew better than the public confidently entrusting the future of the party and, dare I say, the nation to a politician whose flaws were readily apparent and who had already been rejected by the black women of America along with most everyone else. And now, thanks to their arrogance, we are once again staring down the barrel of yet another Trump presidency. But don't worry. I'm sure when Kamala loses to Trump, it won't be the fault of her or the consultant class or anyone else in charge. It will all be those bad old voters who just can't seem to vote the way they're supposed to, no matter which terrible candidate the Democrats try. Um, this latest uh, abandonment staff of Kamala's exodus. mass staff exodus, it's part of the great resignation, I guess. 
And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Joining us now, we have a true legend, filmmaker Oliver Stone. Of course, he is behind many, many movies that you know and love. Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, Natural Born Killers, Snowden, JFK, and now has just released JFK Revisited, a documentary through the looking glass. Great to have you, sir. Good to see you, sir. Thank you, Crystal. And Sagar. Yeah, thank you, sir. So let's start with the obvious question. Why now? Why take a look back now? Are there new details? What made you decide to release this new documentary? Well, actually, no, it's like a long-term thing. Uh, this movie was made, JFK was made 30 years ago, practically 28 years ago. And, no, I'm sorry, 1991 is 30 years, yeah. And uh, there's been, the, as a result of the movie, the Assassination Records Review Board was created as a, by an act of Congress which is a pretty serious thing for a movie. I think it's a unique. They existed for four years. There were five, six uh, academics, but they were had a good staff of technical people who knew what they were doing. And they questioned a lot of people again, brought them back, and in questioned some new witnesses too. So as a result, they, they, and they issued this report. Their, their term ended in 98. They, their term ended, but uh, they... Uh, Congress would not renew it. Uh, and uh, all that information is details, Sherlock Holmes kind of stuff, looking at magnifying glasses, looking at all the details and picking up little things. They all add up. But nothing was done with it with the American media, of course. It was reported badly. It was ignored and it was disappeared. So in 2013, if you remember, uh, there was a 50th anniversary of uh, JFK's death. and. Was it 50th? 50th? Yeah, 50th, yeah. I'm sorry, I sometimes get my years wrong. And if you looked at it, all the TV stations, they didn't have as much uh, cable, as, they, as much as podcasts as they have then. And there, there was no mention of an alternative thinking about the, the Kennedy killing. It was pure celebration of the Warren Commission. Oswald did it alone, lone assassin, all that nonsense on every channel. It pissed me off. And it seemed like we lost that battle in the American consciousness. However, uh, you know, uh, it's coming, uh, there's it, no time limit on this. The point is that I was busy with other things. I was doing, do, doing Snowden, I was doing documentaries, but my associate here, Rob Wilson, my producer, insisted that we go back and do this, leave a legacy, a record, a record of like, a record about this from another point of view which is what we've done. JFK Revisited states the case again, doesn't cover everything. This is the two-hour version. There is a four-hour version available, which will come out in January or February. But it's serious stuff. We went to, and, and it's all factual, documented, checked. And that's what I want people to have as an alternative to go to in case you hear the usual bullshit from the government about the Warren Commission. So you know what's going to happen in... Next, uh, in 63, in, in 23, there'll be the, 23 will be the 60th anniversary of his, uh, six, no, it'll be 70th. In 23, what would it be? Nobody can count around here. Okay, it'd be the 60th anniversary of his, of his death, of his murder. And on that occasion, I'm sure networks will do the same thing. Everything from National Geographic to ABC, NBC, you'll hear the same bullshit over and over again, because they have to reinforce it. 
in the American memory, this is a very important case. This is perhaps the most important case of American government that we've seen in the last hundred years. I can't think of anything more important than his killing. Why? We want me to go into that. Why? Because since Kennedy was killed, no American president, not one, think about it, has been able to touch the military complex or the intelligence agency complex. Budgets have gone up, up, up. The, 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 it's purposeless. Nobody, nobody says stop. Nobody says, what about peace? Nobody talks about an alternative way of doing business in this country, a strategy for peace. No, it's all about a strategy for tension. For preparing for war is very important for America. Much more money is spent preparing for war. War is not a good thing. They all know that. But we're coming awfully close to, to lighting the fuse when we keep pushing in Ukraine. We keep pushing in Taiwan. We keep pushing pretty much everywhere on the map where we, where we, where we create tension. And that's something that Kennedy was totally against. He was a warrior for peace, made many speeches in his last year of his life gave the peace speech at, at uh, American University. And in September 63, he signed the nuclear test ban treaty with the Soviet Union, which was amazing. It was the first treaty between these two countries, really, since World War II. That was an amazing treaty. And no credit has really been given to that because people don't think about it. But him and Khrushchev, Khrushchev, the premier of Russia, and him really were on the path of detente a lot more could have happened. There was a space race agreement to, to cooperate. It was starting to happen, the detente. And the forces in our government, the hardliners, let's say, who don't want peace, who don't want to have any kind of arrangement with the Soviet Union, uh, succeeded in their plan right. to get rid Oliver, of Kennedy. Oliver, let me ask you this, which is what... At what point did you realize that there was more to the official story? Uh, why was it so important in your personal life? And then since then, why have you continued to try and uh, update the American public, create the you know compelling movie? I'll confess, you know, I didn't watch JFK until I was like in my teenage years, and I remember watching this, being like, "Oh my god!" I'm like, "This is crazy!" Like every everything we learned, it caused a whole rabbit hole for me personally on YouTube and more. And now, you know, of course, your work and this new documentary has been integral in exploring that. Can you talk to us in the audience about why you think it's still important, both personally to you, but you know, and expand more on on the legacy of the cover up itself? Well, if you can't look at the past, if you can't see your own history, you're going to be very confused by everything that's happening in the present, uh, and uh, and it, that's what we have now: massive confusion. We have a media that we don't trust, and a government that that many people don't trust. So it's, a, it's all a confusing morass of situations that justify going on with this budget. Nothing changes. We, we stay in the status quo. The budget on the Pentagon goes up, up, up. It's, what, 800 million, 800 billion now, and it's probably going to go be, it's beyond a trillion with all the intelligence agencies and all the extra costs thrown in. Uh, and above all, when you have, we have to realize our presidents are scared. They don't want to touch it. These are, this is the new third rail. You cannot touch defense of America because the, they scream national security. They scream, listen, unless we're out there challenging China, challenging Russia, challenging Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, these are our enemies. That's what they keep saying. And they keep inflating the threat. It's called threat inflation. It's been going on since since I was born, since 1940. Actually, it started really heavily in the 19, yeah, with the Korean War. It started in 1949-50. 
without uh, without sort of spoiling the documentary for people because we want them to go and see it. And I'm also very interested in watching the four-hour version when that comes out as well. Give us a, a few details that you found that were new um, that raise additional questions about the official narrative of how and why Kennedy was killed. Well, the assassin, the, the record review board basically interviewed many people. They went through the, for example, the, the commit, what was the Warren Commission? How was it put together? We found out a lot about from the, from those hearings. Uh, and, uh, it was a crooked deal from the beginning because John Foster Dulles, who was the CIA chief who had been fired by Kennedy, was put, I'm sorry, Alan Dulles, that's his brother's John Foster mm-hmm. Dulles, mm-hmm. Secretary of State. Alan Dulles was put on the board, it was, basically went to all the meetings and was not the head of the board, uh, Warren was, Justice Warren, but Dulles basically had controlled everything the CIA presented to them and cut off all the, the serious questions that could be given to them, which was among them would be, what was the CIA doing uh, in Cuba was it, and trying to assassinate Castro? And uh, what was the Bay of Pigs about, which is a key event in Kennedy's life? What was the missile crisis about? Uh, Dulles made sure that they, the commissioners didn't hear from the CIA, basically. They got bullshit information from them. Hmm. Uh, when it came to, same thing was true about FBI. Anything that was sensitive was derailed by Dulles. So it's like putting the uh, the fox in charge of the chicken coop, as I said back when. Uh, as, aside from that, the 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 board went back into the details, the evidence, and none of the primary evidence that was used on that day holds up. None, not one thing. The rifle, the bullets, the fingerprints, everything that they blamed on Oswald. Not one thing would be held up in court because there was no chain of custody on their information. You'd think they'd take care in a case like this to be ultra careful to, to log everything in which they tried to do, but so many mistakes occurred that it's clear that there was something at work to derail an honest investigation. And we found this out and we go into the details of all that proof. You should see it to believe it. And on one top of, of the that, thing, yeah. sorry, one of the things that, I don't know if this was new or not, but it was something that was new to me was the fact that there were um, other plots on Kennedy's life and attempts on Kennedy's life in that yeah. same year that had been uncovered and yet were kept secret from the public and were kept secret from the Secret Service agents who were you know, tra- tasked with, the, with protecting Kennedy. Talk to us a little well, bit about that piece too because that to me was really um, eye-opening. Well, we go into the detail, more details about the Chicago, the Chicago attempt in November of 63 before, and also the Tampa, Tampa, Florida attempt. Uh, in Chicago, they, the, a landlady spotted four Cubans with rifles in, 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 a, in an apartment, and she brought it to the attention of the FBI, or the police, I don't remember, and they arrested two of the Cubans, and they also arrested the man who was gonna be the next Harvey Oswald. He was uh, Thomas Valley, uh, and he had also, like Oswald, would, was, had a job in a high office building where the car would have to slow down to make the turn, et cetera. He had been a Marine in the program, in a program in Japan, another base in Japan. He had defected to the Soviet Union, so it seems, as did other people. So it seemed like it was a program run by the CIA in the 50s to learn about Russia, sending defectors there. And uh, that's what Oswald was. Came back to the United States, as you know, without difficulty. Uh-huh. And 
was set up to take the rap in Chicago. If but cancel, but Kennedy canceled the trip. Uh, he was warned by by we don't know exactly by who, but he was warned, and he did not go. Uh, in Tampa, it was same thing except he wasn't a Marine. He was a uh, he was a Cuban involved with the Cuban uh, Cuban groups against Castro in uh, Tampa and in Florida. And so there was a big station in Miami. There were a lot of Cubans involved. It was Kennedy had crossed the line with them, you know, by not going into the Bay of Pigs. He refused to invade Cuba. He refused, and that cost him. He, in 1962, when the missile crisis came, the, the generals were very clear, bomb the shit out of them. We're going in there. LeMay wanted to go yep. in. This was an excuse to, to go in for them because the Russians had put missiles in Cuba. Kennedy, again, refused to go to war. He came very close. We owe, we owe perhaps our lives to his uh, judiciousness in this case because it was very close. And it, it was really Robert and Jack and the Soviet ambassador and Khrushchev who solved this issue at the last second. Uh, it was very scary. But it was clear that if Kennedy, the point, the bigger point is that if Kennedy is not going to go invade Cuba, why the hell is he going to go invade uh, send troops to Vietnam? That was the whole point. You have to think of Cuba, you have to think of Vietnam, and you have to think of Berlin and Moscow. These are the three points of a compass. And they all, you can put pressure in any one of those, but Vietnam was a ridiculous. Kennedy said, if I'm not going to send troops into Cuba 90 miles away, why am I going to send troops 6,000 miles away? Remember, he only had advisors in Vietnam. Yes. And this is a big historical point that gets confused because historians who are very conservative, tend, tend to be conservative, are always trying to tell you that Lyndon Johnson... Uh, transition, uh, Johnson continued the policies of Kennedy. That's horseshit. He didn't. He changed everything except the civil rights position on Kennedy. Uh, in Vietnam, he went right to war. He took only a year and he, he, he sent troops to Vietnam, combat troops, and that was over. Uh, I was one of those combat troops, so yeah. that's why I have a particular interest in it. But I didn't know anything at the time. That's when you asked me a question. At, what did I, how did I get into it? Not at all. I was a typical conventional conservative student. Uh, and uh, because my father was, was Republican and very, very intelligent man, and I bought all that stuff, uh, that the Russians were out to get us. And that was very much the mood of the 19, early 50s. Uh, many, of my, many of my dad's friends were, were, were liberals, and he got... Because he was he he entertained different points of view, but they were all scared in a way. They were scared of speaking up. Uh, there was this whole feeling that the if you spoke too much, you you were a Russian, you were a sympathizer. Same thing is true now, by the way. That's what you should recognize. The same yeah. thing is true with all this Russiagate shit. It it starts again, and they keep feeding us this Russia, Russia, Russia. And now it's China. You know, it, you have to understand the nature of threat inflation. This is the this is what our government is great at, and the media helps them. They're great at it. They've been doing it for many years. The CIA put assets in the media back in the 50s, and a lot of them are around this Kennedy case because they make sure that nobody in the, nobody gets very far with an investigation on it. They, they ridicule them. Thank you guys so much for watching. If you want to watch the full interview, it's about 40 minutes long. Become a premium subscriber today. That's what we go ahead and do for our premium subs. We do two uh, long-form ones per month with some special people. This time it happened to be somebody like Oliver. Nice long discussion, um, and that's what we give them along with you know all kinds of benefits. You get to watch the show an hour early, uh, watch it full and uncut, reaction to each other's monologues. But look, 
More important, it is about being able to support our work here so that we can continue to expand out. Obviously, we upgraded the studio. We're looking at bringing on more people, creating more awesome content for all of you. And all we're focused on right now is the midterms. Gearing up, be able to provide you guys the coverage that you're just not going to be able to see anywhere else. That's where we really want to become a major powerhouse. Planning starts now. We need your support if you're able to offer it. So thank you. Love you guys so much. We got some big guests coming up this week. So stay tuned for that. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.